Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. Well, I'm glad you're on board. So return your seat backs to the upright position, buckle up, put your luggage under the seat or in the overhead bin. We are going to take off. We're finishing our series on finishing strong. This is number eight and our last in the series. We said at the beginning, it doesn't matter how you start. What really matters is how you finish. Nobody cares how you started. They only care, did you finish? And so we're going to look today at somebody who had a lousy start for over 55 years, but managed to finish well. And it is a story of God's amazing grace, which means no one in this room even compares to who I'm going to talk about today. You haven't gone that low or that bad. So cheer up. Good news. Now, our text has been 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Paul says, remember that in a race, everybody runs, but only one gets the prize. You also must run in such a way that you will win. All athletes practice strict self-control. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run straight to the goal with purpose in every step. I am not like a boxer who misses his punches. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should do. By the way, it isn't going to do what it should do. You have to train it. Your flesh is never going to do what God wants it to do. Your flesh never wants to say to your wife, I'm sorry, my bad. No, no. Your flesh never wants to go to the gym. Your flesh never wants to resist sugar. Your, your flesh, mine either, never wants to come into agreement with doing what's right, saying what's right, ever. So you have to train it. You have to take it to the gym and just beat the heck out of it. You've got to subdue it or it'll subdue you. And God's telling us that. An athlete has to do it to train his body to do what it should do. But Paul goes on to say, otherwise I fear that after preaching to others, I would be disqualified. A lot of people deep down in their heart are thinking, even today, you've already disqualified yourself from finishing strong and going the distance. Maybe you've committed adultery, left your spouse for someone else, neglected your kids to the point they don't even want to have anything to do with you. Or maybe you feel you've wasted too many years and lost too much so that you have no shot at ever finishing strong or going the distance. Well, if that's the case this morning, stay tuned. It's going to get better. And watch this message to change your thinking. All through church life, my old Sunday school, I can remember I learned a lot about Daniel in the lion's den, Zacchaeus up a tree, Jonah and the big fish that swallowed him, the little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus. But not once did anybody ever tell me about somebody named Manasseh. Manasseh kind of fits in with guys like Attila the Hun, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, 
bin Laden, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. This guy makes them look like Walt Disney. Manasseh's favorite color was red, blood red. He had a hair trigger for anybody remotely interested in obeying God. And this guy comes out of a great home, a godly home from, with an, a godly king named Hezekiah. But he comes out of a godly home with an ungodly hatred for God. Just doesn't even make sense. In Manasseh, we see a man who ran the wickedest, bloodiest, and most rebellious race any man could ever run. But later in life, he reversed direction 180 degrees, and amazingly, he finishes well. And if God could forgive this guy Manasseh, he can forgive you. This is all about the amazing grace of God. So let's start looking at this guy's start of the race in his life. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Now, he actually wasn't alone on a throne. He co-reigned with his father, King Hezekiah. But when Hezekiah died, Manasseh inherited the whole kingdom. So verse 1 says he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time in government office by any standard. They obviously didn't have term limits in those days. Now, if you work at it, you can do a lot of damage in 55 years to a nation. So imagine having a God-hating, evil president from 1968 until today. He could wreak havoc in a nation in 55 years. Some can do it in four years. Look at Manasseh's lifestyle, verse 2. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So he did the same evil that was practiced in the land of Cana before Joshua and his army arrived and wiped them out at God's command. So he had sexual perversion, child sacrifice. Those were everyday occurrence. And among these people, so Manasseh, he equaled the perversion of the Canaanites, these pagan tribes that were already in the land that Israel had to drive out. I mean, he's topping them. He's on a hot streak here. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had torn down and destroyed. The high places were groves on the top of hills for religious ceremonies. And they weren't having church picnic or softball games up there. And they weren't worshiping the God of Israel either. See, the verse goes on in verse 3 to say, He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, and Ash, as king of Israel had done, and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. Now, an Asherah was a wooden symbol of a female deity. You know, it was the worship of sex. They even had statues of sexual organs along with temple prostitutes. That helped male attendance in church. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come on. You don't think the girls were all hot for church that day, but all the guys were. This is, I mean, we're talking wicked here, okay? But, I mean, lighten up, have a cup of coffee. Just stay with me here. Get a, get a glimpse of what this guy's like. Verse 4 and 5. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'm going to put my name. 
For this guy, Manasseh, built altars for all the host of heaven, all these pagan gods, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. It was unimaginable. Manasseh's heart was so corrupt and so callous, he actually went into the holy of holy places in the temple of Solomon and set up altars of worship for these repulsive imported gods. Verse 6, he made his own child pass through the fire. One of the gods Manasseh imported was Molech, and the priest would bring wood and start a roaring fire in the hollowed out back of this giant iron idol. As people worshiped, worked themselves into a frenzy, they would take their firstborn sons and toss them into the fire. Can you believe this guy, Manasseh? Verse 6 also says he practiced witchcraft and divination and dealt with mediums and spirits. Not only that, he dealt with masters of a cult, but he placed them in positions of leadership in the government of that country. In essence, Manasseh named witches and warlocks to his cabinet. In verse 7, then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. And this guy sets up this, this uh, male symbol, this phalanx called an Asherah. So he actually had the gall to take this Asherah, this massive phalanx symbol, and place it in the temple of God. I, you know, I don't know what mess you're in. You're not even close to this. Are you with me? So, so kind of begin to cheer up. You're, you're not even in the race with this guy. So can you see how far down the tubes this guy has gone? And remember, he had a godly heritage. He knew better. He had a godly dad named Hezekiah who had taught him the truth, but he deliberately turned his back on the God of his father. Now that goes on for 55 years. And eventually Manasseh comes to the end of his rope. And now God responds, verse 10 through 13. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done all these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and he's also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. In other words, judgment day has arrived, Manasseh. And God says, Manasseh did more than the Amorites who were before him in wickedness, and they were wicked. Now Manasseh is doing stuff these boys never thought about doing. But Manasseh wasn't open to correction from God or his prophets. But God had said in verse 13, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, now, those are terms used by surveyors. See, when you want to level a hill, you call in the surveyors with their plummet or level. So God is saying to Manasseh, hey, Sparky, I'm going to level Jerusalem. Verse 13, I will wipe you as a dish, turning it upside down. Verse 16 says, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Woo! 
it just can't get much worse than this. Well, here comes Manasseh's obituary, verse 17 and 18. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, became king in his place. Now, that sounds a bit peaceful for a guy who ruled with such terror and perversion for 55 years. It just ends rather peacefully, doesn't it? Like a retired business guy going to Florida. I mean, how can a guy who created a living hell for God's people die peacefully in luxury and comfort and a ripe old age? Well, stay tuned. The rest of the story continues in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and fills in the blank. Verse 10. Verse 10 and 11, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. Oh, so Manasseh didn't retire in Florida and he ain't sipping pina coladas by the pool all day. Doesn't end that way. See, God brought in a military power stronger than Manasseh. They overwhelmed the city. They put chains on Manasseh's feet. They jabbed a hook through his nose, and they hauled him in pain and humiliation to Babylon. And when they got there, they tossed him into a dungeon to let him rot. Well, is that the end of the story? I mean, that's enough, but not quite. Remember, Manasseh murdered the prophets. He sacrificed his own baby in the fire. He led the people into witchcraft. He practiced temple and personal and national immorality, and he encouraged the nation to do the same. Manasseh is deserving everything the Assyrians could dish out. But God does something unthinkable. Very different ending. Now I'm going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 12 through 13. And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now that was the end of the story. This wicked king getting in prison starts feeling bad. He repents and God forgives him. Not only does he forgive him, but he gives him back his throne. I'm scratching my head. Manasseh is set free, goes back to Jerusalem to become king again and worships the true God of Israel. Now, let's review a couple of principles from the story. First of all, I'm shocked, but this is the magnanimous grace of God. That's why we were told to preach good news. This is not bad news, Christian fellowship. This is good news. It's good news for bad people. And of course, we're all bad people. You say, well, I, he's, he's, he's much worse than me. Well, we're still bad. 
And, uh, you know, it's like going to a morgue and saying, he's three minutes dead, he's three months dead, he's three years dead, but they're all dead. So we've all sinned. So we've all sinners. So a couple of principles and I'll quit. First, genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. Genuine repentance unlocks the door of God's mercy. And that'll make a lot of religious people mad. There are two kinds of repentance in the world. There's real and there's fake. Fake repentance is being sorry and crying, bawling, blowing snot and tissues. I got caught. That ain't repentance. You're not really sorry for your behavior and you don't change. You're just upset that you got to pay consequences of getting caught. But true repentance is a remorseful attitude that says, if I had this to do over again, I wouldn't touch it. I wish I could go back and change it, but I can't. That's real remorse. Anybody but me has lived long enough on the earth with enough history where you say, boy, I wish I could go back and undo that. I would never do that again. Hello. Thank you. There was a writer, a Puritan named Thomas Watson. He says, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. Wow. Graphic. It means that from your gut, the center of your being, you abhor what you did. You are repulsed by it. You are sickened by it. And what's more, you will demonstrate your change of heart by a change of your behavior. That's genuine repentance. Now, I may not be able to tell the difference between fake and real in somebody, but God always can. And that's what counts. See, when Manasseh cried out to God from that dungeon right out of his gut, it must have been something. But God listened. Genuine repentance always brings some evidence with it. And that's what Manasseh did. He began undoing all the evil he spent 55 years doing. Verse 14 through verse 16 says, after this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon. He also removed all the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw all of them outside the city. And he set up the altar of the Lord and he sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now that's authentic repentance. And that's in this life of Manasseh. But when it's in his, yours, or mine, it unlocks the floodgates of God's mercy and forgiveness. Some people think, well, that's deathbed repentance. That's good repentance. If it was you hanging on that cross, I'd call that deathbed repentance, right? And that thief said, Lord, remember me. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. I don't know how we make this so hard. It's living on earth is hard. It's marriage is hard. It's raising kids is hard. It's handling the budget that's hard. It's fulfilling a dream that's hard. It's forgiving an adversary. That's hard. Going to heaven, that's easy. Because I didn't do one thing to contribute to it. Not one thing. God says, don't even think about it. So for a lot of Christians, they're mad that somebody didn't get what they deserve, judgment. And this is good news. It's not too late. I don't care how old you are, how bad the past is. It is never too late to turn to the Lord and ask for mercy. That he got us. You know, daddies and granddaddies, I know some of you grandparents like me, we always have a soft spot for our kids, and they know what it is and know how to work it. Well, God, the Father's got a weak spot. It's called mercy, and he can't help himself. 
When people cry for mercy, God answers. Second principle, my past life does not exclude me from present service. Listen to Paul writing the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But now you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So because of what Jesus Christ has done in their hearts, these people have a new life. Most of these people, like Manasseh, had a lousy start, but they're all going to finish strong, just like Manasseh. Why? Because they all had serious cases of the dry heaves, vomiting of the soul. They rejected and vomited their old way of living and never wanted to go back. Don't you think that Manasseh maybe woke up sometimes in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, just dreaming of all the wrong he had done? If he was a human being, the answer has to be yes. Manasseh must have wrestled with terrible feelings of guilt and shame after he was forgiven. I think guilt reminds us of how circuit elephants are controlled. When they're babies, they're shackled by one leg with a strong chain to a metal stake in the ground. And they try and try to escape and cannot. And this goes on for months. The strange thing is, after they become massive, multi-toned animals, they can be held by a rope tied to a wooden stake that could be very easily snapped like a thread. But the elephant remembers how he couldn't break the chain as a baby, so now he doesn't even try. The elephant now is not chained to a stake. He's chained to the idea that he can never get away. That's how a 10-pound stake can hold down a two-ton elephant. And a lot of people, maybe some in here, live tied to their past. It's a major way the enemy defeats Christians and keeps them from finishing strong. See, Satan just throws your past at you. He's called in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brothers. And that's all he does. Yeah, but you've been forgiven. And yes, you belong to Jesus Christ. But that failure keeps coming back into your mind. It's just like a a paralyzing fog. And whenever you seek to move out or do something significant for the Lord, that old accuser of the brother reminds you of who you were, of what you've done, that what nobody even knows. And we become like that elephant chained to the stake. The elephant is chained to its memory, and many other people are as well. The enemy keeps throwing it in your face to paralyze you, to intimidate you, and to neutralize you. Now, you've heard of the jaws of life. When people are trapped in vehicles involved in terrible accidents and they're trapped inside those vehicles by bent steel and car frames, these things can cut through anything to set you free, the jaws of life. And I don't doubt some of you need the jaws of life to cut through the chain of past sin, past guilt that's holding you back and keeping you from finishing strong. Fourth, well, not fourth. Let me just, I want to add a comment here. We need the jaws of life to free us from Bible ignorance. In 1 John 19, verse 30, Jesus said, it's finished. 
when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for my sin and your sin. In fact, he paid for the sin of the entire world. And the Greek word for it is finished is tetelestate. It means paid in full. What you want to see on your home mortgage, on that bank loan, on that student loan for one of your kids, paid in full. I don't owe a dime. I don't go back to it. I don't ask my wife, do you think we, are we, are we okay? We've got the paper, the bill of sale paid in full. I never think about it again. And Jesus is telling believers, I've paid the debt for your sin. I paid it in my blood. You couldn't pay a dime on it, but I did. I took your place. It's paid in full. And then listen to Psalms 103, one I used to memorize, verse 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's loving kindness to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a pilot, I can tell you, if you go east, you'll never get west. And God in his ingenuity made you to know that so that you understand he never can remember what he's forgiven. It never will come up. Now, your wife will remember. God won't remember. He's got dementia. He's got Alzheimer's. Spiritually, when he comes to remembering sin, he has no record of it. I can't find it. It's not on the record. And here's the enemy accusing you, accusing you, and it's already under the blood of Jesus. And God's up there saying, what are you, what are you doing? Don't you realize what I've done for you? So whether we realize it or not, or whether I feel like it or not, those sins are gone. They've been judged. They will never be repeated against me the rest of my life, ever. I will never face judgment again. I can be chastised by the Lord, but I can never be judged by the Lord because his judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what do you beat yourself up for? I don't have to do any Hail Marys. I, I don't have to uh, bow three times to Mecca. I don't have to put anything on my head. I don't have to uh, eat this, don't eat that. Paul says, who has bewitched you? Jesus paid it all. So I don't pay a dime. My job now is to try to obey him. That's my job. See, when we need the jaws of life, we need it to cut us free from unbelief. So some of us have trouble really believing the extent of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're strangely reluctant to believe a liberating truth. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Martin Luther used to spend hours and hours in a confessional box. He would spend six to eight hours confessing his sins to a priest. Then he would walk out and immediately be haunted by something he had forgotten to confess. Some people still do that today. See, if you're still struggling with the chains of guilt, you have not believed what Jesus Christ said in his word. Romans 8 says there is now no condemnation to those in Christ. It's not there. I don't know what's in your past. I don't know what sin the enemy keeps throwing up in your face. But whatever it is, Please know something. If you're a believer, the Lord loves you, has forgiven you, and he has forgotten what was on the table. He's cleansed it. He's wondering how long you'll let the enemy make a slave out of you. Do you know what the name Manasseh means in Hebrew? It means forgotten. And that's exactly what God's done for a believer when he comes to Jesus. He's forgotten 
sin against you and he holds nothing against you. Hebrews 10 verse 17 says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now the enemy remembers and he accuses you. God says, I don't remember. You, you want to spit in the face of the enemy when he does that to you until you absolutely know judicially your sin is paid for, you're free to walk out of prison, you're free from guilt, shame, and condemnation. Now, when a believer does sin, God convicts, but he never condemns. How many of you husbands ever said something to your wife or something, and you know when you said it, I shouldn't have said that. And you're driving to work, I shouldn't have said that. I probably ought to call and apologize. That's called conviction. Condemnation, you sorry dog. You're not worthy of being a husband. You're a loser. Can't believe you. How do you call yourself? That's condemnation. That never comes from God. Conviction. Conviction. See, here's what's wrong. Here's what to do about it. Conviction. See, God has forgotten your sin. Not only forgives, he chooses to forget. And if he's not remembering it, why are you remembering it? The next time the enemy throws that one in your face, you tell him take a long walk off a short pier and tell him to take that chain with him. You are free. Jesus has made you free. And don't you be chained to guilt, shame, and con. And don't give up on somebody just because they've been really bad for a really long period of time. Don't you dare give up. It's not too late to turn around, to repent, to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And he is eager to open his arms and receive you. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.